All right, and welcome everybody to a brand new season of Talking Space. This is Talking Space episode 1101. Now, I always like to clarify at the beginning of each season that the number that you hear, this is not episode 1109, although sometimes it feels like it. This this is season 11, episode 1. So 1101, season 11, episode 1. Now, I also would like to point out that not only is this our 11th season, but 2019 marks 10 years that Talking Space has been on the air slash on the internet, with the first episode of season one releasing September 9th, 2009. So all this year, we will be celebrating a very special 10 years of Talking Space. Just in case you don't know, I am Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is the founder of Talking Space, the man who, back in 2009, got this party started, Mr. Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Thanks for the intro, Sawyer, and I just want to go ahead and just take two seconds to say thank you to Astronomy FM. They have been a tremendous support and a tremendous help to us over the past years. Uh, to Podbean, who has been our hosting service low these many years and thank you so much for for their support to everybody known and unknown that has given their time and effort to this enterprise without you it wouldn't have happened and to thank all of you who continue to support us out there who continue to download the show who think this is worthy of your time really do appreciate the support and uh, we've got some surprises coming up uh, this this coming year hopefully you'll enjoy what we have to offer and looking forward to uh, to getting this show on the road. So again, thanks so much, everybody. Uh, looking forward to a tremendous year uh, for uh, for 2019, and we've got a lot of stuff to go ahead and show you. And again, throughout the season, we will continue to be joined by Mark Ratterman, one of the original founding members as well, as well as Kat Robinson, and possibly some visits from our good friend Cassie Tamanini Craftless as we go through our 10th season, but tonight it is the two amigos that will be getting ready to kick off the season with our regular news show. Now we know that, uh, season 10 ended a little slow. We did have, uh, some personal issues that were going on here, including myself getting quite sick for a while, but things are better now. And here's to a fantastic 2019. But before we move on to 2019, let's do our launch roundup for the entirety of 2018. No, we're not going to go through every single launch, but just want to give you a heads up of how busy of a year 2018 was when it came to space launches. 
In total, in 2018, there were 114 total launches with only three failures in total, which is pretty impressive. To break that down by country, taking the number one slot for most launches is China with 39 successful launches and one failure. The United States, actually somewhat far behind, all things considered, with 29 launches in total. However, zero launch failures. Coming in third place, with no surprise there, is Russia, 20 successful launches, one failure. And in fourth place is ESA, with eight launches and one failure as well. So there's your three failures. A few small names you might not realize in there, including uh, India, with seven successful launches, Japan with six, three successful launches out of New Zealand, and two out of the Ukraine. And, uh, of course, some other countries looking to get into the space game in 2019. But, Gene, does that surprise you in any way that China blowing everyone out of the water by 10 launches? Not really. Uh, they've they've had a pretty ambitious uh, year. I mean, it, they ended it off pretty much with a with a bang, too. And we'll get to that later on. But um, what I was really, really pleased with was seeing some new players on the field. Uh, I want to you know, personally give a, sh- a shout out to uh, to Rocket Lab. Uh, they they are starting to get more and more mature in their launch operations, and pretty soon they're going to be starting launch operations here in the United States, over at uh, Wallops Island, Virginia. So uh, you know, again, they're they're going to they're I think they're going to surprise a lot of people because that that end of the market, there seems to be a demand for CubeSats and for small sats. And Rocket Lab seems to be poised to go ahead and and really really take advantage of it. Yeah, to me it doesn't it, you know it, it's it's not the the quant it's not the not the quantity it's the quality. And I think China's had their their hand of failures. We've had none this year. And you know, knock on knock on wood. Hopefully, uh, twenty nineteen will 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 give us the same kind of uh kind of performance and i think that that's that says something also too what are you launching um we might not have just had the demand to to launch to launch that many payloads this year so you know uh it, it doesn't surprise me not really you know because I, again I, I don't know fully what chinese what, what what the chinese are actually you know launching and, and and nobody really knows i mean they'll they'll go ahead and they'll say oh we're launching this scientific package we're launching that scientific package okay are you <laughs> you know are these scientific packages who knows but um uh does it surprise me no it doesn't surprise me in the least and am i and am i alarmed am i going to hit the 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 panic button no because again We've we really haven't had any failures, and I think that also speaks volumes too. Not only um, because we're 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 trying to be really really careful. I think uh, a lot of even even the the new commercial guys like you know SpaceX and uh, they are really really trying to be a little bit more how could I put it a little bit more careful um, in that department. At least that's what I'm sensing. Especially now, since they're going to be launching crew this year at some point, we hope. And uh, 
uh, you know, government's shutdown notwithstanding. And uh, uh, so we'll, we'll just see how things go. And you actually bring up a really good point there. And one thing I wanted to also look at was the most launched vehicles this year. So the number one most launched vehicle surprise is the Chinese Long March, since they had the most launches. Uh, the Long March 5 taken in the heavyweight with 34 launches this year. But the second most launched vehicle for the entirety of 2018 is the Falcon 9 with 20 launches. And that is ahead of the Soyuz with 15. Yeah, and 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 to me that that means that that that's a good thing. That means that the that the Falcon Nine system is is getting to be more mature. It is it is getting to be a little bit more. The confidence in that that particular booster is is getting better and better as things go along, and they are going to go ahead. And I and I know SpaceX has said. Okay, we're only going to do X with the Falcon Nine, and that's it, and and no more, you know, refinements. I I tend to disagree. I think they are going to go ahead and tweak things as they go along with that booster, and say, yeah, we could make things just slightly better here, slightly better there, and and they will they will try to make that a very very good, reliable, mature system. You also um, make an interesting note there in that. You know, in this year, in this past year, we had a Block 4, we had the Block 4 full thrust, the Block 5, and the Block 5 full thrust flying. So, you know, the different iterations, the different upgrades to their supposed final form of it now with the Block 5 full thrust. But, you know, right. they tweaked it, and even through all the tweaks, not only did they improve performance, but zero failures on the books. So... And in total, SpaceX, with 21 total successful launches, if you then include the successful flight of the Falcon Heavy back in February. Yeah, I mean, and and that's a beast, too, that they are really trying to get more, more you know, their heads around, and and with, uh, with each launch, they'll gain more and more confidence. Sawyer, correct me if I'm wrong, I think they want to go ahead and launch that thing twice this year. At least twice, yes. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, so um and it's uh, like, it's it seems very doable and they've got, you know, obviously coming up in 2019, they have Crew Dragon demo flight and then DM1 and 2, the unmanned test flight currently scheduled for January 17th or no earlier then. And uh then obviously the main test flight which I believe is scheduled for this summer. Right. And uh, um, that is going to be momentous. It looks like, indeed, they're probably going to go ahead and beat the competition that, that is Boeing. My bet is they probably will at this juncture. <laughs> I will probably have to agree with you. And uh, if we are breaking down U.S. launches, by the way, in terms of U.S. launch providers, uh, SpaceX obviously taking the cake by a long shot this year with their 21 launches ULA between the Atlas V, Delta IV series, launching seven of those class of rockets. And then this I found quite interesting. Uh, Electron with three successful launches in 2018, and that is ahead of uh, the now Northrop Grumman Cygnus, which launched, or the Northrop Grumman Antares, which launched twice. Yeah, but you know they're two different birds. Um, Antares is designed to carry the the Cygnus spacecraft. I I know they are pursuing commercial opportunities with that. 
Uh, Antares is a different bird. Antares is designed right now to carry the, the Cygnus spacecraft. But if it can do some other commercial launches, it will. In fact, with the newly uh, newly fitted engines that it has on there, I believe um, uh, Northrop Grumman Innovation Systems indicated that they have just about the same lift power as a Atlas V one with those engines because the the engines really, really gave them more performance than they really thought they were going to get. So there are some possibilities now. The door is open for Antares to kind of step through. And they're not alone, by the way. They're still developing the Omega, which will fly out of... Um, which will fly, I believe, out of the uh, the Kennedy Space Center. In fact, I think they they've got one of the high bays on. They're talking about a lease in one of the high bays in uh, in the vehicle assembly building to put that launch vehicle together. So that's that's waiting in the wings too. So the commercial launch in in the United States is going to get more and more interesting as as all of these folks kind of sort of duke it out, if you will to uh to be the preeminent launch provider and that's just why uh, i wanted to bring up those numbers of comparing spacex ula electron and north of grumman with the different vehicles there of just you know it is becoming a lot more commercialized and they the launch numbers are climbing uh, especially spacex who you know i believe their goal this year was either 20 or 25 launches and regardless whether they surpassed it or got extremely close to it and most importantly, with that zero failure number, and I should point out, most importantly for all four of them, that magic zero failure number. But just interesting to see how they're all progressing, and even the smaller companies like Electron starting to, now that they're getting in the groove, starting up their game, even if it is a specialized type of launch. Yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, Rocket Lab Sawyer, as you're pointing out, is is specialized in the small sat and CubeSat market, and that market is only going to get bigger and bigger as time goes on because a lot of people are going to that uh to cubesats and uh and small sats that market is is just burgeoning and I, I see rocket lab being in in the middle of it but let's not forget too there's a company out there called vector that really wants that that uh, a, a chunk of that business as well so i think commercial launch at least here in the united states is is going to get really really interesting as as uh as things go forward and again let, you know, let's not forget united launch alliance they still have as far as i'm concerned they're still you know the the 800 pound gorilla in the room when it comes to comes to launch you know uh, uh, capabilities and so on so i mean they'll they'll bend over backwards and really really tailor make the vehicle to uh to to fit what you you really want it to do and they'll try to use their you know it's that uh sorry forgive me my 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 brain just just turned off they have a feature on their website rocket builder there it is that kind of demonstrates what they're able to do with some of their boosters that alone is going to going to be a, a big deal as well so it's going to be interesting to see how how old salts like like United Launch Alliance and and um, uh, Ariane Space and now you know North Grumman Innovation Systems really kind of fine tune themselves against the SpaceX juggernaut, which by the way is learning more and more as about the vehicles they have. 
as they move forward. So if they can really, really concentrate on getting the job done, you know, making sure the customer is happy by, you know, getting the vehicles off relatively on time. I mean, you can't fight Mother Nature. And, you know, sometimes the, those technical gremlins can, can ground you. But if they can get a good cadence going, and I think they're, they're, they're in position to get that good cadence going. So they're going to be a threat uh, and a significant threat going forward. And they're going to be, you know, stealing business. I think from 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 everybody. They're going to be stealing business from India. They're going to be stealing business from ILS. They're going to be stealing business from Ariane Space. And I know Ariane Six is supposed to be coming on online soon. Uh, that will also change the picture a little bit. And then, of course, the aforementioned Omega coming in, and even with medium launch now with Delta Two no longer on on the. Uh, um, on the horizon, uh, Antares is there. So if you really need that medium launch capability, you know, Antares is out there if, if, if you want it. So who knows? It's going to be really, really, <laughs> I keep saying this, but it's going to be really fascinating to watch all of these, these heavyweights kind of duke it out for supremacy and, and who wins, who knows at this point, because everybody you know, all the horses and all the horses on the track are, are really, really poised to make significant inroads, I think. And I'm going to be interested to see if listening to our launch roundup in January of 2020 and comparing it to this year and uh, see what we get and see uh, who's on top of that. It's, it's just going to be fascinating to follow all of this. And uh, a reminder to all of our listeners, we are just focusing with this one on orbital space flights. There were Plenty of great suborbital missions. There are plenty of great sounding rocket missions. Of course, there was the successful flight of Spaceship Two, which may or may not have made it into space, depending on if you believe the NASA definition of 50 miles slash 80 kilometers or the Kármán line of 62 miles slash 100 kilometers. So, but we're focusing on orbital missions, orbital class rockets, and it'll be uh, very fascinating to see where we are this time next year, too, as uh, 2019 promises to be another busy space here. We've got manned launches from the U.S. scheduled aboard both the SpaceX Falcon 9 as well as an Atlas V carrying the Boeing Starliner, so plenty to look forward to. And the first launch of 2018, by the way, from the U.S. is scheduled for January 8th. And that is the continuation of SpaceX launching the Iridium Next satellite network with 10 more satellites launching from Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. Yep. And that is going to those. I believe the Iridium satellites are ironically built by uh, Northrop Grumman Innovation Systems. <laughs> that is true. Admittedly, it was 2018, though, when Northrop took over flying the Antares. But yes. Yeah, so it, um, well, they're and, well, actually... took over, not just flying the Antares, but took over Orbital ATK, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, that's what, it, yeah, exactly. And, and well, to, to put the history in perspective, yeah, Orbital, um, Orbital was the ones that were initially building the, uh, the, um, uh, the Iridium satellites, but now they're, now they carry the Northrop Grumman name, but, uh, right. um, still. still the irony need... is not lost. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Speaking of getting in timing just right, we are now going to go farther than Talking Space has ever gone before. 
And not just because it's our 10th year, but because we are going out in towards the Kuiper Belt here. Uh, we are going to check up on New Horizons, which, as you recall, launched back in 2006. In 2016, got to go visit Pluto for the first time, taking some of the highest resolution imagery we have ever seen of the former planet, current dwarf planet, slash Kuiper Belt object, slash Pluto, you're always a planet in my heart. And then continuing onward, which it seemed like that was the end of the mission. However, the mission scientists working on it had another plan. They wanted to fly by the farthest object that humans have ever studied up close. And for that, they chose the object 2014 MU69, or as it was nicknamed in a naming contest, Ultima Thule. And as it flew by, it had a matter of seconds to fly by, take some imagery of it, take some data... And then 12 and a half hours later, we waited New Year's Day to get the data back. And boy, were we not disappointed in any way, shape, or form. While it started off coming back blurry, the day after that, we got images of what looked like a snowman. <laughs> it turns out two former pieces of very earlier solar system that likely collided together into one singular 21-mile-long object in the farthest reaches of space that we've studied so far up close. And it is so cool. Yeah, Sawyer, the, um, just to, if, if folks were following my Twitter feed, I was probably following this uh, extraordinarily close the, the entire mission here because it was one of the, one of the really, really, I, I thought this was such an incredible way to end uh, 2018 after the, uh, the 2015 uh, encounter in um, in July, uh, I remember because I was in the auditorium for this, and a young lady, I guess, there uh, stood up in the audience um, and asked the question, "What do you do now for a follow up?" And there was a massive applause, you know, uh, in the in the audience, and and Alan Stern said, "Yes, we are indeed looking for opportunities here." And uh, the uh, object, Sawyer, as you pointed out, was only discovered in as as the first few digits of the name 2014 indicate. It was only discovered in 2014 uh, by uh, I believe it was um, the uh, Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Labs, uh, Dr. Mark Bowie, uh, who is also I believe a team member on uh, on on New Horizons now. And uh, so this object wasn't even known at the time that the vehicle launched. So not only are you trying to go ahead and find something that you didn't know existed before, you didn't know it. This was the first time that we took a spacecraft by an object that we didn't know existed at the time of launch. That that's how challenging this this was, uh, and and to give you a, a an idea of of how challenging this really really was, um, picture taking a golf ball in Los Angeles and trying to hit that golf golf ball all the way to um, a golf course, say in New York, and scoring a hole in one. That's what the team had to do to get this right. And gosh darn it, so far so good. They 
The flyby occurred, the actual flyby occurred at um, 1233 uh, Eastern Time on uh, January 1st, and then we kind of bit our nails. I mean, there was a lot of celebrating, don't get me wrong, um, because that was the time of the actual flyby, but it since it takes like six hours for you know commands and data to 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 swap hands and and so on, we would not know until pretty much around ten o'clock the following day what the status of the spacecraft is, and this thing was tra- flying past this this object at a speed of about 32,000 miles an hour. And it's had to get all of this data correct. And lo and behold, it it has not disappointed at all. Um, to one of the, the primary uh, pieces of the mission was to find out what, uh, you know, did this object have any moons or anything like that? So far, there's no indication of, of of moons or anything along those lines. But we're new in the in the data collection process here, so we'll have to go ahead and and continue to get to analyze the data. And the data from that particular encounter is going to last. You know, the data download is going to last twenty months. And again, the reason why is you want to go ahead and empty out the recorder, but you want to go ahead and empty out that solid state recorder that's on board that vehicle. Um, and you want to make sure you get it, but it's also going to take time because you are something along the lines of like, what, 4 billion miles away from home. So it takes the Deep Space Network some time to go ahead and grab all of that data. And that's what's going on right now. Right now, there's a there's a little bit of a, a a vacation, if you will, from from data download because of solar angles and and what have you. But um, they'll they'll go ahead and get this right now. Sawyer, you were alluding to the 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 object itself, and uh, if if I recall exactly, I think it's about what about. If I'm, I'm I'm going over over the top of my head here, um, it's about 19 miles in length um, from tip to tip. Uh, the uh, they decided since it looks like it is a contact binary, that means that the object was made out of two what was once two separate you know pieces, and then somehow or other got fused together. They've decided to name the smaller smaller one. Um, Thule and the the uh, larger one, Ultima. Um, Ultima is about twelve miles across, and Thule is about nine miles across. Um, and Jeff Moore had explained the reasons why this, you know, they may have fused together, was um, or how they fused together, was really interesting. I thought he's it wasn't this this crash between the two objects it was more of a really really slow kind of meeting if you will between the two he said it was so slow that i think he 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 mentioned that was about one mile uh the the objects first met about one mile an hour which means that 
if to to put this in 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 some perspective, say you hit somebody's bumper at about a mile an hour, and you stepped out, and you probably looked at the damage. There might have been a scratch, and it's like, yeah, all good, and and you moved on. You probably wouldn't even bother to exchange insurance information. Um, there is actually a a lighter ring around where the 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 two objects meet, so they're they're trying to get a better understanding of that. And as more and more high-res pictures come down from the spacecraft, I believe those those really, really high-resolution pictures are, are due back in February, it's really going to go ahead and answer a, a lot of questions that we still currently have. But this was no small achievement done um, by the team they 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 really really <laughs> they really had to look for a needle in a haystack and and they pulled it off and they pulled it off glor- gloriously yeah i mean score like you were saying <laughs> score in a hole in one that's if there was such a thing as better than a hole in one that uh, that's the way to describe it i mean this was just a, a fantastic achievement uh, of humanity the ability to have such a small window of opportunity and to learn so much in it is amazing. And it's such a cool find. And what a way to ring in the new year with uh, Ultima Thule or Emni 69, depending on what you want to call it. Cause I know there's um, been some controversy about which name to call it. Yeah. And, 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 uh, you know, I, I'm going to, I'm going to defer to Alan Stern on this one, Sawyer. I've got, we, I, I was, I was going through some of the, um, uh, some of the press conferences again to just prepare for this evening. And I found this, this one cut from Alan Stern that basically described uh, what, it, what his thoughts on the whole thing to put this in perspective, uh, the the controversy surrounds the actual name. It initially uh, thousands of years old. It and it initially comes from I believe the uh, I think it finds its 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 heritage in, in in the Viking lore and so on. In fact, at one point in time, I believe Greenland was referred to as Ultima Thule. Right, and um, the the phrase itself is a Latin phrase. Uh, translating for beyond the known i mean it's been interpreted now as beyond the known universe or beyond the known world alluding to areas of the north that had not originally been discovered such as greenland and things like that so right the latin origin of the name famously for things like that unknown area of the north right and i mean it even showed up in an old if if, if you're a science fiction aficionado it it actually showed up in a in a space 1999 episode uh one of the old uh jerry anderson uh series i believe there was a world that uh, was referred to as ultima thule in a, in an episode uh deaths of other dominion i believe it was called um but uh that aside uh there was a newsweek article article too uh that kind of brought this to light apparently there was some Oh, usage by some rather nefarious individuals in the 1930s and 40s that we unfortunately had a, a row with that is called World War II. Um, and we ended up defeating and, and uh, sending them packing. And um, uh, 
because of that and because of the bruising that that really, really, you know, the wound that that reopens, um, that and that Newsweek article kind of brought that to light. In fact, I wouldn't have known, to be honest, Sawyer, I wouldn't have known about that part of its history, um, the name's history, until the Newsweek article, to be brutally blunt. Um, well, Alan Stern kind of uh, put that into perspective, and and he answered it this way. Yeah, hi, this is Alex with See With Nature for Alan. There's been a lot of chatter in the last 12 to 24 hours about some of the historical associations with the nickname Ultima Thule. Uh, can you talk about how you justify continuing to use that nickname for this object? Yeah, I sort of thought we might get that question. Um, you know, I've said it a number of times, uh, I think New Horizons is an example, one of the best examples in our time of, of raw exploration. And the term Ultima Thule, which is very old, many centuries old, possibly over a thousand years old, is a wonderful meme uh, for exploration. And that's why we chose it. And I would say that just because some bad guys once liked that term, we're not going to let them hijack it. Thank you. So I thought, okay, yeah, I mean, grant you, there was a lot of applause in there, but Sawyer, as, as you pointed out um, in our uh, discussions prior to the program, you know, it was in front of a friendly audience. You know, it, again, the name is the name, even even the numbering name, um, uh, 2014 MU69, that also is temporary. Um, Ultima Thule was just a name to be used uh, because people just didn't want to refer to the object as 2014 MU69. Um, and I must say, as someone who their day job is working in the media and I have to go on camera and talk about subjects like these, we appreciate not having to keep saying 2014 MU69. <laughs> Plus, Ultima Thule just sounds pretty cool. Just saying. Yeah, so so they they they, they kind of threw that name tag on it, and even that is going to probably change uh, once the IAU has their say. I don't think they're going to, you know, because I, I believe too that the name doesn't doesn't fit their um, uh, I guess their standard for for naming objects of this kind. It's neither here nor there, and in in the final analysis with all of this, it's much ado over nothing. Yeah, Alan Stern himself was saying that uh, the spacecraft is is extraordinarily healthy, uh, and there are they are planning on doing something um, in the not too distant future. Once you know they get all the data back and and so on, they're actually going to be putting they're actually going to be looking around for other opportunities for the spacecraft. And once they do, they'll submit the, that that particular opportunity, um, and uh, uh, you know assess the spacecraft, make sure it's got enough propellant to do something, um, and uh, they'll they'll probably try for another Kuiper Belt object, uh, and they'll probably keep trying these things while they've got that that spacecraft out there as long as it's healthy, and wants to to continue to perform. I believe he said the the they've got enough uh, fuel uh, 
on board the spacecraft, or at least the RTG should be good through 2030. So there's going to be opportunities um, all through this, uh, all through these uh, these next few years for the spacecraft, and we ain't going to be done with it yet. Not for not by a long shot. Oh, this is one we'll be following, and again, we may see a target in a few more years. Maybe before the show's over, we'll get a few more targets. 15, 20 years into our talking space run. Who knows? Because keep in mind that, just for reference here, New Horizons launched before talking space was ever a thing by about three years, and we've been on now for 10 years. And look at what it's done since it launched. It's it's just phenomenal. Also, in case you couldn't tell, the references to this being our 10th year on the air are long from being over as well. It <laughs> may or may not be sick of us saying, all right, we get it, it's your 10th year already by the end of... <laughs> By the end of the season, if not by the end of this first episode, just just <laughs> say. Anyway, let's continue along, and let's mention a few quick shout-outs that we want to give. Uh, and those are to the teams working on OSIRIS-REx and Mars Insight. So first, a shout-out to the OSIRIS-REx team. OSIRIS-REx, in case you've forgotten, launched a few years back in 2016. Talking Space was there as it went on its mission to study the asteroid Bennu. Well, not only has it reached the asteroid Bennu, it has now officially entered orbit around asteroid Bennu. It will be orbiting around it for the next year or so as it looks for a site to become the first ever spacecraft to take a sample from an asteroid directly from it and send it back to Earth. That sample collection again is scheduled as of right now for July 4th, 2020 with return back to Earth in 2023 of at least the sample capsule. But for now, we've got a year of studying. And not only that, OSIRIS-REx is now... The spacecraft, the first spacecraft to orbit the smallest object yet, if that makes any sense. The smallest object that any spacecraft has ever orbited is now being orbited by OSIRIS-REx. Uh, and the other shout-out that we do want to give is to the team working on the Mars InSight mission, which first, uh, we were in a health hiatus as the uh, Mars InSight lander safely touched down on the surface of Mars, becoming the first vehicle to safely do so since 2012's Mars Science Laboratory, a.k.a. Curiosity. This mission's goal is to study not just the surface of Mars, in fact, it's going deep underground with an instrument that will eventually be digging about 16 feet underneath. It is also coming along with a whole bunch of other instruments, including a seismometer, which the seismometer so far was actually turned to the sky and was able to record the first ever sounds of wind on a foreign body and now is on the ground and is about ready to start its science or at least the testing to then begin its science of studying Mars quakes. Yeah, and that seismometer is the first one uh, on this is the first one really on Mars and it's super sensitive. I believe it could literally detect a pin drop on the other other side of the hemisphere. That's how um, that's how super sensitive this particular seismometer is. So the idea too, by turning it on while it was still on the deck, was to get a baseline because I think it was also picking up sorry the vi excuse me um, the vibrations of that wind as it was hitting the spacecraft. So you want to weed out really. You know, are we dealing with an actual seismic event or are we dealing with a, um, you know, something along the lines of the vibrating spacecraft or or is the wind playing tricks on us? That kind of thing. So 
before you go ahead and deploy the seismometer, you want to make sure that you get rid of all the the what what it's picking up and what you know the ambient sound sounds like and what the you know the vibrations sound like. So then this way you're not going to the wrong conclusions and saying, "Hey, we've detected a Mars quake." When in reality, you've just, you know, had the wind come through and, you know, shake the spacecraft a little bit. So you want to make sure that all of that white noise is eliminated and you can get that out of your of your uh, your your study and and really, really concentrate on what you're supposed to be looking for. And that is any kind of um, uh, any kind of Mars quakes on the surface. Exactly. And while you're fine tuning the instruments, instead of, you know, listening just for seismic activity and cutting out the wind, why not record the wind, cut out the seismic activity and make some more science? So an unexpected surprise there as well. So again, uh, the Mars Insight team just getting started playing with their new Mars toy and already the science coming back is never been heard before. And it's fascinating and I cannot wait to see what else this mission discovers, especially as it finishes getting its instruments set up and begins digging underneath Mars. This is going to yep. be so cool. It is. I mean, the, the, there's this is the first time we're we're doing anything like this. So, uh, folks, again, strap you know, for for people that that still think NASA's kind of sitting on its laurels. Uh, I beg to differ. About <laughs> I seriously beg to differ. So absolutely a shout out to NASA and the team working on uh, Mars Insight and the teams that are working on OSIRIS-REx and all the other missions that we don't even have time to mention, all the fascinating things they're doing. But these are just the amazing things that have happened end of 2018. But these are just the amazing things that have happened end of 2018 into 2019. And it is still exciting and it will never cease to be in case you can't tell by the way that I'm describing it. And keep in mind, this is genuine excitement. This is not just I'm faking it for on air. This is just genuinely me trying to describe it. I'm not reading off a script. Fun fact, in case you didn't know, these intros and descriptions leading into these are not scripted. These reactions are not scripted. These are all genuinely the excitement for all the science coming back. So we're talking right now just what NASA's done because the next and big final one that we want to talk about is there was a lunar landing too thrown in there on top of all of that in case you didn't know back on january 3rd so again still 2019 the Chang'e 4 lander which launched in december from china successfully landed on the moon which what's the big deal it's a moon landing well first off moon landings are still a big deal <laughs> and second off Chang'e 4 was the first ever mission to land on the far side of the moon and I do want to point out yes we said far side of the moon not dark side of the moon one's a Pink Floyd song one's a scientific term for the other side of the moon just want to clarify that but uh, Chang'e 4 successfully landing on the far side of the moon the first spacecraft ever to do so and uh, we do want to give a congratulations to China on that but the reason that we chose this as our final big story is because there were two big things that came out of this landing. And uh, one we kind of expect from China, and one is a question of what do we expect. So, part one. Why did it take China so long? Well, we know the answer because it's China. But I should point out that China did take quite a while to officially release that they've landed. And so far we have basically the one photo. And then the second question is, 
does this mean that a human landing is next? So let's let's start with part one, because Gene, you and I were talking about that at first. The how long it took and who actually put out the information about Changi for landing. Yeah, the, well, first, the other component of the, uh, of the spacecraft is, of course, a small robotic rover. And, of course, this is Jade Rabbit 2. And so far, it has, um, we've had some photo- photography from, uh, from the, the main craft looking out at the rover, which is now deployed on the surface. And from what we can tell, the, the area is a little different from what we, we recall um, on the opposite side, the, the side that, that faces us, where the Apollo spacecraft landed along the, the equator. Um, the treads kind of go in a little deeper in the surface. Uh, the coloring is also just slightly different. It's almost Mars-like if you look at if you've been able to go ahead and take a look at the uh, the, the photographs coming from uh, from the spacecraft. So it's it, it's kind of intriguing as far as what what we're we're, we're kind of looking at. So I'm hoping that there's going to be some kind of soil analysis, and I don't know if China intends on on sharing it the way um, NASA does, because again we're well it's well China. But um, uh, it would be interesting to find out if, you know, what that soil analysis yields to see if there's any difference between what's going on on the far side as opposed to, you know, the areas that we landed with Apollo. Um, So I'm just going to put that out there. There have been some other photographs that have been put out there. But, you know, as far as... uh, as far as doing things transparently, as Sawyer, you and I were talking about beforehand, they really weren't all that transparent. In fact, um, that's one of the, the things that, that you know separates the U.S. And, and others, I think, from what China's doing. China kind of took a page from out of the old Soviet Union where they really didn't report it until it was totally successful until they knew pretty much the spacecraft had landed. Um, we were look, looking at um, uh, various Twitter accounts that kind of get got plugged into all of this and various boards that we, that people were looking at. And we kind of had to, kind of had to piece together what was going on rather than 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 Chinese media sitting there and covering it because they covered the first one pretty pretty darn well I thought but this one was sort of carried out under under the uh under a, a cloak of 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 secrecy here and and the only thing I can think of is you know just in case something went wrong, they they just wanted plausible deniability to save face, and and that would be really about it. So, uh, but I mean, news of the of of the landing really didn't hit the official newspapers, if you will, of of, of China until after it was confirmed it was over. Um, so that's one of the big differences between what we do here in the U.S. We do it. Right there in the open, everything's in the open. Uh, the orbital insertion uh, for for Bennu that was done, you know, pretty much out there 
Um, the New Horizons flyby, that was done pretty much as it happened, as we were getting the telemetry down. You, we actually televised what was going on in the Mission Operations Center, and you were able to hear um, Alice Bowman proudly declare that uh, they had completed the furthest flyby that human beings had ever, ever dared to accomplish. Uh, you didn't get that with the Chinese, and that that's that's the big difference between the two philosophies. We have a tendency to do everything in the open. Uh, we understand that the U.S. taxpayer is footing the bill for all of this, so they have a a full right to go ahead and know what they're getting for their money. So, oh, it's all done done out there. Whereas China was really, really playing it close to the vest. Um, I believe, and and I probably am, am misreading this gentleman's name, but Andrew Jones, he writes for uh, uh, GB Times. He was one of the sources that I was watching and, you know, reposting on Twitter what uh, he was he was talking about and what he was able to, to, to piece together. GB Times is a, is a a China focus uh, website. So if you you want to go ahead and take a look at that, please. He's he and he writes about um, you know space science and and science in general coming out of China. So if you really really want to get an education, you know, go ahead and and pick up his stuff. But uh, um, if you look at the official news reports, there really wasn't anything going on um, until it was confirmed. So the only thing I can think of is if this thing became like a, you know, a splat on the surface, they just wanted to save face and say, well, you know, whatever, we'll move on. Nothing to see here. So that, that, that's my only, that's my only thought. But even though that other sources would have seen that, yeah, there was an attempt made and we didn't, they didn't follow through, so. I, I sorry, I don't know what your thoughts are as far as you know my theory about you know just trying to save face, but I'd like to hear what you have to say. I, I mean, I have no other way to describe it other than that sounds very much like China. Uh, I mean, the difference though is is that they broadcast the launch. They showed well, of course not in real time, but they released the video at least to the West of the launch of. Changi 4 and its successful launch and said hey in January although they did not I don't recall a specific date said in January we would plan to land so they made their intentions clear so if it had failed we would have found out eventually I mean for all past <laughs> major failures we tend to find out when it comes to launches we get video from villages of things crashing <laughs> I mean, yeah, other joint missions that China's had unfortunate failures with. We've found out about all of them for the most part. We found out about, you know, when their space station re-entered, albeit not with a lot of time, but we found out about it. And I have a feeling regardless, we would have with this too. It's just, yeah, it could be them trying to save face or, you know, hey, they not only did they announce that they land, but momentarily thereafter... They had the video of Mission Control, and they already had the first image down. So it may have just been their, let's get everything gathered, ready, and push it all at once, as opposed to NASA, where, you know, for the Mars InSight landing, it was, hey, they landed, we may or may not get a picture, and we're literally watching it download pixel by pixel as we then see the first image from Mars. 
Yeah, I mean, and again, case in point, you know, insight. We could have had a bad day there, and we didn't. We had a we had a really good day, and uh, we're getting to be halfway decent at this this EDL thing for Mars. Uh, so, but but again, if and honestly, China's getting halfway decent at uh, their landings now on the moon. Yeah, but. Um, and again, this this was a first for them. This was a first ever. And I, but but to put it into proper perspective, it's not probably not something. If we wanted to back in, like, say the the early to mid seventies range, theoretically, we could have done the same thing, where we could have sent, you know, if we really wanted to. Um, and I'm going to go out on a limb because there was a uh, um, if I believe exactly from the old James Michener novel called Space one of the the last Apollo missions that he depicted in his book and I'm going under the pretext that this this would be possible and I haven't talked to any anybody from from the Apollo days that 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 could plausibly say that we could have done this but we theoretically could have had a had a human landing on that far side if we wanted to um, all you would have to do because at one point on the on the apollo service module there was an open bay with a lot of instrumentation in it that we were using and one of those um instruments was a small sat that that was deployed out of that instrument bay if you really wanted to, theoretically, you could take that instrument bay, hollow, you know, that hollowed out instrument bay, have three satellites sitting in there, deploy those in, in strategic points around the moon, set that up as your communication um, network, because that's one of the problems with landing on the far side is the communication issue. So what they, the, the way China did it was they had a, a small satellite um, which is still in orbit around the moon right now, and to use that as a relay station be between the um, the spacecraft and that's on the uh, on the surface w and this orbiter and and uh, and back home on Earth. So they kind of, that's the way they kind of solved that problem. Theoretically, we could have solved that problem too back in the seventies by you know, using three small sats deployed out of the service module, and we theoretically could have attempted uh, attempted a far side landing if we had the will to do it. And unfortunately, back then, we just, you know, didn't have that national will to do it. We had too many oars in the water at the time. Um, so, you know, China in, in their... their uh, uh, wisdom saw a possible uh, opening for them and said, "Hey, nobody's landed on the far side. Let's do it." And lo and behold, they took, they rolled the dice, and gosh darn it, it worked. So you know, my, uh, you know, hey, all all respect to them. Hats off, and I actually wish little uh, little Jade Rabbit too that's running around that the the area around von Karman Crater uh, all the best. Um, in uh absolutely i mean we all want this to succeed and the pictures coming back again while they're not may not be plentiful they're stunning 
just seeing again like you're mentioning just this eerie lunar color that we're not used to seeing from you know this typically non-well lit side of the lunar surface is amazing and again this is you know china's had a few of these lunar landings now this is their second little rover that's going around on the surface in the last few years and this brings us to part two of what i had mentioned earlier about discussing this is that some people are saying hey this is their precursor to a crew mission to the moon they already have a crew rated rocket they now have proven that they have the capability of setting up communication networks and orbiting the moon as well as landing unmanned craft on the moon they're going huh doesn't this sound very similar the u.s kind of did the same thing you had the surveyor missions and then they worked their way to orbit and to landing so is china next with manned or should i say crewed missions is this on China's itiner- Is this on China's itinerary to go ahead and get a piloted mission to the lunar surface? Probably they've been sort of intimating that, or at least trying to read the tea leaves. Uh, that seems to be what they're attempting to do. Um, does it mean they're knocking on the door? Uh, I don't think so i think they're probably around on the level where we were with say oh i don't know surveyor the surveyor program um one of the things that i recall china saying that they were nowhere near uh getting a vehicle like say falcon heavy together uh, they were about 10 years away from that And in order to go ahead and get to the moon and get people to the moon, you need heavy lift. And I don't think um, Long March 5 is there yet. Uh, They said flat out, too, again, to to recall, they don't have anything like Falcon Heavy yet. And and to get to the moon, you're going to need something like that. Um, Heck, you're going to need something along the lines of an SLS to get to the moon. And do they have that in their, their quiver? No, they don't. Do they have a, a piloted lander? Who knows? Right now, uh, they may have one in development for all we know, but uh, um, there's no sign of it being out there. Uh, they still they still have their space station program. They still have the Shinsu uh, spacecraft. But I don't know if it is capable of like a a, a trans uh, lunar trajectory or anything along those lines. Uh, if, if it's anything like Soyuz, again, who knows? So it, it, it's kind of a huge question mark right now. China's always been a huge question mark anyway. But uh, uh, to go ahead and say that oh they're they're going to be landing on the moon you know, a week ago Tuesday. Uh, probably not, you know, with with human beings, probably not. I don't think we're they're, they're there yet. Does it mean that the United States is losing its edge? To put this in perspective, let's let's review what we just talked about here on this program. New Horizons just flew by the furthest object in the solar system. That spacecraft carries the U.S. flag. We just went in orbit around Bennu with Osiris Rex. 
We have how many spacecraft in and around Mars? We have at least one functional rover on the surface. A new rover will join it in in uh, a couple of years from now. Um, we have how many telescopes looking at far-off objects right now in various light waves, you know, various um, light frequencies. And, and, of course, we have the International Space Station, which, by the way, has been occupied now for I don't know how many years. And, yes, the U.S. flag has not come down on Building 30 for some, for at least more than a decade. So there has always been a presence now for uh, for in space from the United States for more than for at least more than a decade. So when I hear that the United States is losing its edge in space and NASA's becoming you know, this dinosaur, this anachronism, it's not inspiring anybody anymore. I kind of laugh at that because there's 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 more to come from the NASA story on this. We have Orion waiting in the wings. Commercial crew is waiting in the wings. The, the space launch system's waiting in the wings. We have a robust launch services economy going on here in the United States and I'm I, I sit here and I, I I'm I'm incredulous when I hear comments like that Sawyer you know, I'm going to throw the ball to you I've, I've been talking too darn long I mean my thought is yeah this is definitely practice for a manned mission but not anytime soon I mean will we ever see uh, some of the science results from Chang'e 4 I don't know but I certainly hope so I certainly hope they share it uh, but if nothing else, they're absolutely testing the technology to land on the moon, and deservedly so. I mean, right now, only one country has landed on the moon. It was the United States, and it's been since 1972 that we were last there, so with people at least. So I wouldn't blame them for doing it, and I personally think it's about time someone does it, whether it be private companies, another country, a joint effort between countries, which is what I'm hoping they end up doing, but... I could very easily see a Taikonaut planting a flag on the lunar surface sometime. Notice I didn't say sometime soon, because you brought up the great point at the very beginning, and we had talked about this earlier, of, well, it's great they can land something unmanned, unpressurized on the lunar surface, but not only are you going to need uh, to be able to get into orbit, you're also going to need a lander that's pressurized, that's safe, you're going to need to get them down, you're going to need, you know spacesuits for the lunar surface, uh, sample collection, a way to keep that sample collection safe and uncontaminated for when you bring it back, a way of protecting the astronauts from the hazards that we learned during the Apollo program that is the lunar regolith and what it does to astronauts' lungs. It's basically like sharp pieces of glass inside it from all the astronauts I've spoken to is it can be painful. So there's a lot that they need to understand, and I'll be honest, they can probably steal a lot of that from... What we learned the hard way in the 60s and 70s, but you're still going to need a lander, and I think that China will do it, but I don't know if China's going to do it on their own. I could see, you know, another maybe China-Russia joint type deal, something like that, but regardless, I think we're still 
years away from that. Now, are we probably close to a lunar orbit with crew? That, I wouldn't say, is crazy to happen in the next two or three years. I could see that easily happening sooner than later. Now that they've proven, hey, you can get this communication satellite into orbit, we've gotten multiple landers into orbit, and then down on the surface, I could see them pulling an Apollo 8-style type mission in the next few years, and I wouldn't be surprised. And In fact, I would encourage it, personally. Well, you want to make sure, too, that uh, the spacecraft that they have is you know, bulletproof enough to go ahead and accomplish that. And I don't know if, if uh the the Shenzhou spacecraft is 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 up to that. I mean Granchu it's based on Soyuz design. Soyuz was initially designed to do that. Um but you know the only way to really do it is to do it. And the best way to really do it is is to try it first, you know, unpiloted, see what happens, and then uh, uh, throw people in it. And if they try that unpiloted, then they definitely have tipped their hand. Um, we didn't do it unpiloted, grant you, but we had other motivations <laughs> at the time. That is true. Admittedly, we also weren't planning on jumping straight ahead to Apollo 8 as soon as we did. And, right. Uh, there's a lot more about that, Gene, you mentioned in your great Apollo 8 uh, anniversary special at the end of last season. Thank but, you. Yeah. yeah. The um, But yeah, I mean, you know, I, we could we could go on in this, but, but what I, I really wanted to get out there was I think a lot of the people out there are just I, I see a lot of clickbait out there basically saying, oh, my God, China is 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 basically usurping the United States in space. We have to be careful. And they mix up, you know, the, the whole thing with the Space Force and all this. And that's a whole different ball of wax, which I'm not going to go down. That's a whole different other rat hole, which I'm not going to go down here on this program with. Um, because that's a, a, a military endeavor and NASA's got nothing to do with that. And I'm, I'm a little tired of that getting mixed up with all of this, too. Um, but uh, again, Sawyer, I agree with you in that I don't see it happening in the not too distant future because there's no there's no indication that they're ready to do any of that. I, I If they're going to do it, I would suspect that they would do what we did with Apollo, which was to, you know, have a test of the lander while in, in Earth orbit. And then once they're, they're happy with the lander's performance, then try it around the moon. And then if they're happy or happy with that, then make the landing attempt and do it in a kind of a safe area, which is what we did with Apollo 11. We landed that on a, on a basalt plane, and would I see them tr attempting to put humans on the far side if we haven't done it yet? Um, yeah, that might actually be what where their what where their aspirations lie. Who knows? Do I see also? And and Sawyer, you brought this up, and um, do I see a joint effort at some point between them and and Russia, possibly? Because the way things, you know, the way the geopolitical picture is, is, is unfolding right now, I don't know if, if they're going to be sticking and out with us after ISS or not. So always fun to talk some space with you, Sawyer. And I uh, want to go ahead and just say thanks to everybody for continuing to support us. Take that as you will, whether this is a precursor for something more or not. And if you think it is, 
Let us know what you think. You can always still email us, mailbag at TalkingSpaceOnline.com. Tweet us at TalkingSpace. We're also on Facebook and Google Plus as Talking Space. And I do apologize. We've not been checking the email as well as we normally have. Again, I typically do that, but I've been unable to for a short while. But we're back. We're checking the email, and we always want to know what you think. So uh, go ahead and send us along your comments. And with that... That brings this first episode of 2019, the first episode of season 11, and the first episode of our 10th year on the internet to its conclusion, and I'd like to thank you for joining me tonight, Gene McCulka. Always fun talking some space with the Sawyer, and I just want to go ahead and say thanks a whole bunch for everybody that made us part of your listening day over the years, and who still continues to support us. We got a lot more coming for uh, 2019, so uh, stay tuned. We appreciate everyone who has ever listened to us, downloaded us, however you uh, listen to Talking Space throughout the years. We thank you for it, whether this is your first episode or whether you've been with us for 10 years. We appreciate it, as always. And uh, as Gene alluded to, there is so much coming ahead for our 10th year. And because it is our 10th year, we have so many big things planned. We've got great interviews already scheduled in the works. We've had some that we've had recorded for years that we're digging out of our archives off of some old hard drives we found and dusted <laughs> off and we'll be putting out and all of their original glory. Uh, one of those, I believe, may be coming up next, if I recall. And uh, mm, got be. a lot of special stuff this year. So we hope you'll stay with us. And of course, Talking Space will be there. We will make that promise now. Talking Space will be there. We'll be covering the first crude launches from U.S. soil since the space shuttle program ended, of which I should point out, Talking Space was there in July of 2011 as well. So we will be there for the first this year, too. We hope you'll join us for all the journeys that we have coming up for 2019. But in the meantime, one thing that has not changed in 10 years, I'd like to say thank you for joining us. And as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are.
uh, Phobos Grunt, or uh, Phobos Ground, as it was called, was indeed a sample return mission, or an attempted sample return mission, uh, to one of the Martian moons, Phobos. Uh, it was uh, supposed to have returned a sample sometime in August of uh, 2014, but unfortunately the mission failed. I believe, too, there was a planetary society uh, payload on that particular mission as well. But indeed, it was a joint Russian-Chinese mission. So there was a—that uh, that mission, I guess, really, really you could say set the precedent for that. 